Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. We're here to tell you about what we think are the most interesting science stories of the last week. And we want to do it in a really honest and open way. We want to talk about all the methods, all the results, and talk about what we think the implications to these stories might be. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, Singing Mice and Californian Snow. Jesse, why don't you get us started? So to start us off, we're going to watch a video, uh, which you guys are going to listen to. Um, and we'll throw the video link up in the show notes so you can uh, watch it later. Oh, it's a mouse. <laughs> it sounds like a little songbird. <laughs> oh, there's, there's two mice now. He, he doesn't sound as excited. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah. So as you may have guessed, what you're hearing there is the song of the mice, specifically the, the song of one male mouse uh, attempting to attract a female. I had no idea that mice sung like that. Yeah, neither did I. Absolutely no clue. As it turns out, the rest of the scientific community does know that and has for over 50 years. Oh, they just didn't tell us. I was pretty surprised, actually. Okay. It was heavily studied in 2005, where they found a broad spectrum of vocalizations made by mice in the ultrasonic range. So that means above normal human hearing. That's out of our normal hearing range. And what you're listening to there, those sounds have been lowered by quite a bit. Oh, oh, so this is why I wasn't aware of it before. This, I just, like, I can't hear this normally. Yeah, exactly. We can hear some vocalizations that mice make. Yeah, of course. For example, baby mice calling out in distress or squeaks or other things. Yeah. But these ones that we were listening to there are out of our hearing range. They're they're above 20 kilohertz, which is the highest note that the human ear can perceive. Okay. Yeah. So these are ultrasonic vocalizations or USVs. Okay. Okay. I'm now okay with this. I'm aware mice sing. Great. So what's new this week about mice singing? (laughs) Well, there was a new study out of Duke University from a group of researchers who wanted to find out what the vocalizations were actually for, these ultrasonic vocalizations in adult mice. And so they analyzed them the way they analyzed birdsong. They were looking for changes in patterns of syllables and pitch to try and find out how their songs changed in different situations. So what their songs meant. Exactly. Is there meaning? Are they just making noise? Or is there a reason for this? Right. It had been theorized in the past that adult mice use these USVs for courtship. But now we actually have proof of it. Oh. This study found that male mice, when they detected an unseen female, which was in this case from smelling her urine. (laughs) So romantic. Yeah. You know how it is with mice. Yeah. They started this complex loud song performance that you just listened to. Oh. It's a love song. Yes, it is. It is their love song, or at least their sex song. Uh, little little Marvin Gaye there. Let's get it out. <laughs> now, that would be pretty amazing if we found out that the mice were actually singing Marvin Gaye songs. <laughs> well, I, I believe their uh, Marvin Gaye's family will sue them for copyright infringement. <laughs> okay. Well, back to the actual mice songs. Sorry. The, the interesting thing that the researchers found was that the male mice did this complex, loud performance okay. when they detected... A female but didn't actually find her oh that so that was the first part of the video was exactly that was the first he was part. just smelling her urine and then doing that complex song yeah okay but when the female was actually present they quieted down and made simpler easier to produce vocalizations and songs okay so 
what we're actually seeing here, what the researchers think we're seeing here at least, is that the males will loudly sing with these complex, intricate songs to attract the females initially. And then once they actually show up and get there, they quiet down their vocalizations and focus on actually trying to have sex with them. (laughs) (laughs) What we're basically listening to is mice whining and dining female mice. Right. So this is the first stage is the guy at the club showing off his dance moves. And the second stage is later that night. I actually don't know where this is going at all. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going with this. I think one way of looking at it is that he, he he tries really, really hard to get her. And then once he gets her, he kind of stops trying. And so unsurprisingly, the females responded way better to the loud, complex early vocalization. So when there were speakers playing both the later after I found her sounds mm-hmm. versus the where the heck is she? I smell her pee sounds. They would, they would move towards the speakers that were playing those early vocalizations. So clearly those are the more attractive sounds. Oh, okay, yeah. And we've seen the same thing in some species of birds where more complex vocalizations with more range, changes in pitch and volume are more attractive to the opposite sex. So it really is them trying harder. It really seems to be them trying harder to attract those females. It's not the, sec- the second song is like the let's get it on song. Versus the where are you, I love you song. But it, it, it could be. They really do respond to the first one better. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the females are more attracted to that early song is really quite telling. Yeah. So what are the implications of this? Well, at the moment, not a lot. Um, <laughs> what these researchers are interestingly hoping to do with this is use this knowledge to learn a bit more about autism spectrum disorders in speech. Really? Yeah, because as it turns out, mice and rats have relatively similarly structured brains to humans, which is why they're used in a lot of medical trials. Yeah. They're also cheap and plentiful, which helps. Yeah. But they're hoping that by looking a bit more at how these vocalizations actually take place, we can learn a bit more about how speech and sounds are synthesized in the brain. Cool since it is actually easier and cheaper to do research on mice than it is on birds. Very cool. Um, yeah, so one of the things they want to do next is find out whether these songs are canned, like they're predetermined in their heads, or whether the mice are actually making it up on the fly, whether they're composing as they go. Oh, so compare them with different female mice and see if, uh, see if they're customized love songs. Yeah, exactly, if they're really you know singing a special song to each one. Is there a name in there, or is it just baby, baby, baby? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, one one thing that's kind of interesting is that unlike birdsong, which is actually passed down and taught from the parents to the offspring, mm-hmm. these mice songs seem to be innate. Oh. Which means they're actually born with the ability to make these vocalizations. Um, a relatively recent study found that when mice were made to be deaf from birth, they still made the same vocalizations. Oh, that's fascinating. So this this is an innate built-in behavior. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. This is surprisingly in-depth research for something that I'd never even heard of. Yeah. I mean, I think this is pretty cool. Like, who knew that mice sing like this and that these vocalizations have so much meaning to them? I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. What do you got for us, Lucas? I've got an announcement which occurred on April 1st which I found a little disturbing, and actually quite a bit disturbing. On April 1st, it was announced that the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the north of California is the lowest it's ever been recorded. 
And that's not an April Fool's joke. And that's not an April Fool's joke. And the thing is, it's not the lowest by a little bit. It's not like it just kind of broke the record a little bit. The previous record, which was first set in 1977, was 25% of the average snowpack. Oh. And that was repeated last year in, uh, in 2014. But this year, in 2015, we were at 5% of the average. Holy cow. So there was pretty much no snow. And this is a really serious issue, as the Sierra Nevada snowpack supplies about 30% of the state's fresh water. Which is already seriously low. Exactly. So California is in the middle of this devastating drought, which has lasted four years so far. And I figured that as California's water issues have been receiving so much attention in the media recently, we could cover a few basic questions about them. Okay. So I came up with three questions that some scientific studies can answer. Okay. The first question, what is happening? The second question, why might it be happening? And the third question, what should we do about it? (laughs) That seems to cover all the bases. Cool. So what is happening in California right now? A drought is essentially a deficiency in water supply. Right. And that's determined by two factors, how much water goes in and how much water goes out. And it's the balance between the two which detects your water supply. Okay. So an example of something that would put water in would be precipitation. And an example of something that would take water out would be something like evaporation. And anything, any serious shortage lasting longer than 15 days could be considered a drought. But in this case, it's lasted much, much longer than 15 days since the, uh, the season of 2011 and 2012. And there have been some really serious impacts in California. Uh, a study last year found that in 2014, the state lost about $2.2 billion in economic activity as a result of this drought, and about 17,000 jobs in the agricultural sector. Wow. So that's, that's pretty serious. <laughs> that's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. In addition, because river water is so low, they're pumping out groundwater to replace it. And that's a really serious issue because groundwater takes a lot longer to replenish than river water does. So the effects of this drought can last a lot longer into the future with depleted groundwater reserves. We're not using the most renewable resources here. Exactly. And there's also uh, reduced hydroelectric potential. There's increased forest fire risk. And there's really serious impacts on ecosystems. Jeez. Uh, Everything from salmon runs and low stream to uh, greater prevalence of bark beetles in the forests. Wow. So that sort of leads to the next question, which is the main one I looked at of... Why? Why might this be happening? Why? What's going on here? <laughs> and the main question everyone's asking is, could it be climate change? Right. That seems reasonable. That seems like a reasonable question, but it's a really tough one to answer. And that's because you can't really attribute any one event to climate change. Because climate isn't weather. Weather is something happening. Climate is describing what you expect the weather to do right it's it's trends it's statistical descriptions of weather events a prof in my undergrad always said climate is what you expect weather is what you get okay as a result you can't say that climate change caused any one particular drought but you can say it increased or decreased the likelihood of a drought occurring and that's exactly what a paper published this last january did they looked at historical records in california of precipitation droughts and temperatures And they found that the occurrence of drought is closely related to warmer temperatures. This might seem pretty obvious, but it's got a really important implication. Okay. So when rainfall is low in a particular year, if that year is warmer, it's twice as likely to result in a drought. They also found that there has not been a significant change in the lack of rainfall 
over the past 20 years. Oh, interesting. So lack of precipitation isn't really to blame here. But there has been a significantly greater occurrence of drought in the past 20 years than in the century before that. Huh. So, using climate models, they suggested that human warming is to blame for the increased likelihood of dry years. There are also warm years. Okay. So, the number of dry years hasn't increased, but the number of warm years has. Which is theoretically our fault. Which is theoretically our fault. (laughs) So, we should expect conditions like this to become more common in the future. So, that brings us to question three. It does. What should we do about it? On the same day that that snowpack was announced as the lowest of all time that we've recorded, Mm -hmm. there was also an announcement of new water regulations in California. Right. Now, I heard about this. They've they've got forced regulations now, right? Exactly. So the governor of California issued an executive order to all local water supply agencies in California, agencies that regulate water coming out of your taps, uh, essentially utility organizations in uh, cities and towns and such. Mm Mm-hmm. This executive order said all agencies must reduce water by 25%. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty significant. It didn't say how to do that. But it said you got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how do you... How do you cut a quarter of your water usage out? Well, it's it's really hard. In California, 77% of the water usage, so over three quarters of the water usage, is due to one thing. Can you guess what that is? Swimming pools. <laughs> not, not quite. Swimming pools actually make up a lot a lot less. Ooh, watering lawns. Nah. Drinking. Nah. You see, the thing is, that these are the things people think about. Okay. They're the water, that's the water usage that we deal with in everyday life, right? Toilets? Nah, we deal with that in everyday life. This is a hidden use of water, which is really important for us, but we don't think about it. I have no idea. Agriculture. Right. So farms, crops, livestock, over three quarters of their water usage is simply agriculture. And there's a lot of agriculture in California. There's a lot of agriculture in California. The produce section in your grocery store will tell you that. To top it off, many farms have been cut back previously in some way, but most large farms get their water from outside of these local agencies, and so they won't actually be forced to cut back under this restriction. So it's a major challenge. And one with no really clear answers at this point in time. Well, that sucks. That's awfully depressing. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I apologize. I mean, it's interesting because it's a major challenge and it's an early example of humans needing to adapt to climate change. Right. Right? There's nothing we can do about the actual climate in terms of something that will affect California now. The only thing we can do is adapt to it. And it'll be really interesting to see how the state can manage their resources and what sort of successes and failures they have and how they uh, how they work through this drought. Right. I guess that'll become pretty apparent quickly now, too. I would sure say so. Because they're, they're on the clock. There's a lot of research going into this issue for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's a very important issue. Mm-hmm. But second of all, there's a lot of researchers that live in California. <laughs> so we've only just scratched the surface of the literature here. And we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes for those interested. You can find those at doubleblindscience.com. All right, Jesse, that's all we have for this week. We really hope you've enjoyed our adventures into this week's science news. We got two more news stories for you coming up in seven days. Did you see something in the news that you'd like us to cover? Maybe a headline that seems too good to be true or a story that no one's bothered to explain clearly enough? 
Give us a shout by email at stories at doubleblindscience.com or on Twitter at doubleblindsci. Thanks a lot. See you next week. See ya.